Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Welcome to our our uh, special segment here uh, on the Golden State Killer. And this is a case that has absolutely fascinated me. Uh, we now know that the Golden State Killer was Joseph James D'Angelo. He is a 74-year-old man uh, now being held in prison in California. Uh, I'll read a little bit about him here to you, and then we'll bring on our guest. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. is an American serial killer, serial rapist, burglar, and former police officer who committed at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes, and over 100 burglaries in California between 1974 and 1986. He was responsible for at least three crime sprees throughout California, each of which spawned a different nickname in the press before it became evident that they were committed by the same offender. He began as a burglar known as the Visalia Ransacker before moving to the Sacramento area where he became known as the East Area Rapist and then was linked to additional attacks uh, in Central California and uh, eventually became known as the Night Stalker and then later the original Night Stalker, because, of course, if you remember, serial killer Richard Ramirez had also been called the Night Stalker. Uh, the investigation into this went on for decades. It was possibly the most uh, famous cold case uh, in American history, certainly the one uh, that was the, the coldest for the longest before he was captured and joining us. Uh, is the author, co-author of the book, Case Files of the Golden State Killer. Keith Comos is back with us. Uh, Keith, thank you so much uh, for being back with us tonight. Uh, so much happening uh, on this story. And uh, I know that um, a lot of people listening tonight are familiar with the story. But for those that are not, do you want to fill in any blanks and sort of give us a little bit more of a historical context uh, about this case? Actually, yeah, I'd love to. And thank you for having me back again. Um, I think this is our fourth time uh, diving into this. Yes. You've been very thorough in covering this case, and I really appreciate that and uh, the way that you've approached it um, and all that. So, yeah. Thank you. Good to have you, sir. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Um, But, yeah, now that he's pled guilty to all of these crimes, we can actually um, sort of do this a little bit differently than we've been able to in the past. We can actually dive into the man's uh, connections to these crimes without saying alleged every two seconds. Um, so uh, how much time do we have tonight? I, I We have uh, as much time as you want because we're no longer uh, on the network. Uh, about a year and a month ago, I broke off from the network and we're now commercial free. And I own the stream. I love it. I own the stream, so I love it. we'll stay here as long as it as as you're willing to stay and talk about it. 
All right, so typically, great. typically we go typically we go forty five minutes, but that can be shortened or lengthened depending on your availability. Excellent. So um, then, starting at the very beginning here, uh, Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., the future Golden State Killer. And I can't get enough of saying that lately. Um, we're able to finally say that legally. Yeah. Um, he was born in 1945, a few months after World War II ended. He had three siblings. He was born in New York. His father was military. And the family lived in Germany for a time while Joe was young. And then they returned to the northeastern United States sometime in the 1950s and then ended up in California. So that, those were his early years. Um, one of the first dark turns that this story takes is that a relative of D'Angelo's has um, claimed that sometime in this period, um, this younger period, uh, Joseph witnessed a young family member get sexually assaulted on an Air Force base where their father was stationed. Um, and it, if Joseph was there to, to witness that, uh, that that horrific crime against a child, uh, you, you know, you have to wonder about the theories of violence, perpetuating violence and internalized trauma and all of that. Um, of course, you know, it doesn't come close to excusing any of the choices that he made later in life or else, you know, the trauma that exists all around us would be minting monsters left and right. Uh, but in a case as extreme like this, it's it's natural to start looking for factors and variables that align because D'Angelo's behavior um, doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So at the end of the 1950s, the family lived in an area east of Sacramento, California called Rancho Cordova. D'Angelo is about 13 years old at this point. Um, Rancho Cordova, if you remember, is where he would later return to begin a series of home invasion rapes and burglaries that became known as the East Area Rapist Series. So you know, one of the theories we discussed way early on about the offender having a tie to the area was correct. Uh, a lot of people thought, you know, he had to be familiar with the area to sort of start there with that type of crime. In fact, um, one of the streets that D'Angelo lived on during this time, Olson Drive, was the scene of one of the earliest East Area Rapist burglaries. Wow. So on his, so on his, on his own street, he was doing this, which, uh, you know, I, on the one hand, they always say that uh, these types of criminals work in their own zone where they live or work. But to offend on your own street, that's a little bit bold, right? Especially for one of the earlier on crimes. It is. Yes. And that's why it's always so important to find the earliest crimes that some of these offenders commit, because there is a strong correlation between them starting in a comfort zone and, and being from that area and, and starting out where they're more comfortable or even going back and looking at how the area has changed and all, all of that stuff. There's, uh, But it's bold. It's one of the many bold things that he did. Of course, he hadn't committed very many crimes yet, so he didn't he didn't have as much to hide from. But that data point was there. Um, so, yeah, but even back in the late 1950s and early 1960s, D'Angelo was probably committing crimes as a teenager. It was revealed in the last court hearing that we'll, we'll discuss later on that D'Angelo committed a burglary with a friend while they were teens. And D'Angelo actually, at this burglary, he actually maimed a dog with an M80 firecracker. And this was before the Child Protection Act of 1966. So those things were explosive and um 
as the actually as the years went on, there were a lot of accounts of D'Angelo hurting. Keith, or let me killing let me dogs. jump in. I want to ask you because um, this is one yeah. of the big questions I had for tonight. I, am I getting the gist then that part of his his deal his his uh, you know avoiding the death penalty by agreeing to plead guilty is that he's going to be completely transparent about his whole history, and that being the case. Is it likely we're going to find out a lot more about this guy? Like maybe there were a lot more crimes that he committed, like some of the things you're talking about right now. That was a hope that is a lot. That is part of a lot of plea bargains, but it doesn't appear to be the case in the D'Angelo trial. Um, It looks like he and maybe Stuff will happen later or there's there's part of this that I don't know anything about, but he's not saying anything about anything. He's actually I mean, he's he's trying to create as much distance between himself and these crimes. Even now, like even in court, he's you can tell he's somewhere else in his head. He goes to his happy place, whatever that is. And he's during the the final hearing that we had a couple of weeks ago. He even kept looking at his lawyer to to figure out: Am I supposed to say guilty or am I supposed to say I admit? Um, because there were some crimes he had to plead guilty for, and some crimes that he had to admit to, depending on when they were charged, when he was charged with them. And so far, he's not said much of anything. But there was when he was being interrogated, there was um, a confession of sorts. Um, one of the revelations in the plea hearing was a short transcript um, of something D'Angelo had said after he was arrested uh, while he was in a police interrogation room. He began talking to himself. And actually, I printed this out. Um, he said, this is what he said, um, D'Angelo speaking. He said, I did all that. I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, He's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. Wow. I destroyed all their lives. Did, did Yeah, so now I've got to pay the price, he said. So he refers to this other person as, as Jerry, a different name. And uh, yeah, and, and, you know, part of me says, okay, that's a bunch of BS. This guy is a murderer. He knew what he was doing. But on the other hand, part of me says, you know, horrible things. It it always I always feel inclined to think someone has some degree of mental illness that can do these horrible things. But again, it's not like an excuse for them. Uh, what do you, what what do you make is of this? Because you followed this case so closely. Um, the, the idea, the one thing we both agree on, I think that is so unique about this case is how he stopped killing for so many years uh, before he was caught, which is unusual for a serial killer to just stop and then all of a sudden. Uh, all these years go by, uh, but this this I, this notion of Jerry, another personality. Uh, what do you make of that? What's your take on it? You know, I can only theorize because his his brain is like an alien cloud that none of us can really pierce. But um, I guess okay, my initial feeling is, is that he's manipulating and attempting to lay groundwork for incompetency. You know, even at that early stage. But I think there was some of that mixed in with a shock, you know, the shock confession as his narcissistic world 
caved in around him. You know, well, one of the things that D'Angelo became known for in his court appearances was this uh, dumbfounded, aloof, blank-eyed, open-mouthed, sort of spaced outlook. So I think in addition to trying to get mercy from the courts with like this feeble old man act, I think he's probably distancing himself mentally from all of this as best he can. You know, Jerry did it. I wasn't strong enough to push out Jerry Um, and mentally just going somewhere else when he's in the courtroom. He would, you know, he would have had to be able to compartmentalize and put the blame on something or someone else or a different part of himself or distance, or he wouldn't have even been able to live with himself or do those things without turning himself in. But, you know, the, the idea of mental illness or, you know, people have even suggested demonic possession or, or something. There's, you know, there, there could be some truth to it. it. It would be very interesting for him to be psychoanalyzed. Um, but, you know, can you believe anything that he says? You know, will we ever know? You know, I really don't know. Yeah. Now, the families, from what I understand from the news accounts, the families seem to all be okay with this deal to avoid the death penalty, which then would avoid a trial and avoid all of this having to be brought back up again, victims having to testify and live through this all again. Is that your sense of it, that largely the families were okay with this 74-year-old man at this age now foregoing the death penalty, and and just uh, which in California is not really in, enforced much anyway uh, in, in right. recent years. So w- was this a, a winning outcome for the families? Yes, I would say, but for the most part, yes. You know, I can't really speak for anybody, but, you know, looking at how we got here, a, a little bit of context might might help. You know, the court process, even this preliminary stuff was a very long process, and everybody knew that going in. Court hearings didn't really go anywhere for two years. There was a preliminary hearing that was set to happen earlier this year, though, and this would have been where witnesses take the stand in front of the judge and provide testimony that helps assure the court that there's enough evidence against D'Angelo for the actual trial to move forward years from now. You know, this would be very bad for D'Angelo because a lot of the evidence against him would be set out loud in court. and The testimony would become part of the record forever. And I know some people... We're looking forward to that process for their own healing and and journeys. You know, D'Angelo's team fought for delays and and they began pushing back hard against the idea that he could even be charged with crimes outside of Sacramento, inside of a Sacramento courtroom. Because remember, all of the crimes around the state were going to be tried in one little super trial. And I've got to say, D'Angelo had really good public defenders. You know, I want to acknowledge that our justice system depends on people who will adequately represent, uh, in his case, the lowest of the low. They work behind the scenes with prosecutors to to uh, end this with a plea bargain, which, and this is where we get to your question, which logically is an appropriate resolution. And I say logically because a plea bargain doesn't check all of the boxes of what victims and families probably need from this process. But like, like you said, this is a death penalty case. And that even though there's a moratorium, uh, that really seemed to rattle D'Angelo. And they had him on DNA, and that science was not going away. Prosecutors had all the chips, um, but working out a deal was still a reasonable way to go with this. And families and victims were consulted. And the thing is, is with so many of the victims and witnesses getting up in gears, and unfortunately, um, 
even losing some as time has marched forward, there was this fear that with, with all of the delays, uh, too many people would be lost um, before they saw resolution to this. And there's the coronavirus pandemic to consider with all the logistics of, and the vulnerable, vulnerable population that would have to be in court. And this is the big one for me. There's the indignity of a victim having to be cross-examined by defense attorneys as the defense attorneys try to invalidate the victim's testimony. Right. And and saying like, how can you be sure it was 25 years ago or 30 years ago and and putting people in that situation? Now, even though there's not actually enforcement of the death penalty in California, it's my understanding that death death. those that are convicted um, and facing the death penalty are held in much harsher conditions. They're uh, isolated from general population. They get very limited time outside of their cell. Uh, so that's another reason why if you're someone facing that, you would want to take the plea bargain and maybe be able to at least have some degree of, of freedom within the prison itself. Is that right? Yes. And I think this is what this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier is his act um, trying to sound insane or trying to look feeble. Uh, a, a lot of us believe that he's trying to end up in an infirmary or a geriatric prison or somewhere very soft compared to where he, he could end up. And it, the, with the death penalty um, moratorium and, and whatnot, you know, he's. In his mid-70s, he may be planning to live 20 more years, and there's no guarantee that the moratorium will be in effect forever. And he also has to assume that if anyone gets in power who's very pro-death penalty, uh, he may be bumped to the top of the list. So, Yeah, uh, yeah, all of of those things. And also, too, you know, uh, like you said, by avoiding a trial – he can still kind of keep this denial going and Jerry and this whole story and not really have to face face the reality of this. And does he have any living uh, children or, or family members as well, which would also maybe be another reason to avoid the public humiliation of his of his close relatives? Yes. And I feel for them so much. He's got um, children a grandchild. Um, he's got uh, a lot of uh, nieces and nephews. He's got a lot of family. And um, from everything we understand, is they didn't even have a clue that this was in this guy's past. Yeah, just like Gary Ridgway, uh, I believe he was like a deacon at his church and his wife is married and had children. And nobody, nobody knew. And it's just, it's hard to imagine that, but, uh, but people have these kind of split lives and, and, and they're known in one sense by their, their family in, in the way that they want to be known. And then they've got this dark side where they go out and do things and become a different person. That certainly couldn't be any more true than it was in the case of Joseph James D'Angelo. Uh, for people not familiar with the familial DNA and how he was ultimately caught, can you talk about that for a couple of minutes? And also, can you address whether you think that played any part in the uh, plea bargain? Because this would be the first time I think that someone would be brought in for murder because of familial DNA, at least as far as how it was worked in this particular case. I mean, we know scientifically he's the guy from DNA, but the process by which that occurred 
could that have been uh, challenged? So, so explain that to our, our listeners and, and, and also address that part of it. It was sort of an innovative use of what a lot of people are doing when they're mapping out their family trees. Um, there's a website called GEDmatch that um, allows you to do deeper familial DNA matches than was po possible like more than five years ago. It uses a different sort of technology, a different sort of matching. And uh, some of the case investigators uh, were thinking, and I want to name drop uh, Paul Holes here, who was an investigator from Contra Costa County, who really led a lot of this effort and assembled a, a great team um, to do this. Uh, they they thought, you know, if we can find uh, identify victims through this method, if we can identify long lost relatives through this method, could we upload the offender's DNA, create a massive family tree of everybody that this unknown offender is related to, and start working through it with old-fashioned detective work to figure out which one of these people in this family tree could be the offender? And that's what they did. And it took several months. Um, they went through thousands of different names, and it eventually led to Joseph James D'Angelo, and they went and got... Um, sort of secret DNA samples from the door handle of his car and then from his trash to make sure that, yes, this is the guy. And they arrested him on that. And before they did any of this, they consulted attorneys and figured out, is this legal? Is, is this going to hold up in court if we identify him this way? Because the last thing you want to do is have this case thrown out. So they did that. And, you know, it could be uh, part of the the reasoning for a plea bargain. You know, in general, this is an old case that has passed through many, many hands. And there are some parts of it where, you know, the chain of custody of some of the, the evidence and, and whatnot may not be super tight. Uh, and there, there may be areas where the defense could attack them on. And uh, I don't think it was that big of a factor. There have been some cases, and we call this this method investigative genetic genealogy. There have been a few cases that have gone through where this method hasn't really been challenged. Um, one of them that's actually happening in Sacramento starting next month, uh, he's a guy named the NorCal rape, Rapist. I think his name is Roy Waller. Um, that, it may be challenged in that case, um, but it's definitely... Uh, it could be a little bit of a factor, but it, I think it definitely would have held up in court and because the DNA matches and the science behind it, uh, there may be, you know, uh, constitutional issues with that may be challenged, brought up or challenged about how it was done. Um, but I don't think those would have gone anywhere. Who knows? I, there were probably all kinds of conversations about all kinds of things. And all kinds of factors that went into this. Because wouldn't the, wouldn't the argument be a probable cause search argument that that you you have this guy's DNA, but even though you can match him uh, to the crime scene, what 
probable cause did you have to zero in on him other than through this sort of dragnet of science uh, to get to his doorstep? Um, and that's an, it's just an interesting thing to discuss. I, I only went to law school for one year, so, um, I'm not an attorney, but I would think that would be where that discussion would, would go. And, and we're really, you know, with forensic science, not just, uh, with, with genetics and, and all of this, but also with forensic science as it relates to computer technology. And I know that that's your, your wheelhouse as a, as a being a tech guy. Uh, more and more, it's, it's harder for people with, with cell phones tracking you from moving one tower to the next it's harder for people really today to get away with very much uh because if their location is able to be tracked and, and other factors uh, it's very hard uh today do you think that uh, a guy like d'angelo with all of today's technology uh could have gotten away with what he did for so long there's no way that he could have gotten as far as he did without some sort of change to how he was doing it. Um, because, you know, even at uh, the houses in my neighborhood, uh, most of us have several different camera systems, alarm systems. Uh, if there's a missing animal, we can get with each other and find out when it got out of the backyard. Uh, we can get pictures of people scoping out houses and breaking into cars. Uh, there's his big, his big thing, at least at the beginning, was a lot of prowling and peeping. And he would have been caught fairly quickly. Uh, now, of course, he had a law enforcement degree. He had law enforcement experience. So he would know how this sort of how these techniques are being used. And he knew the rules of evidence, I guess, is, is how you could put it. Um, but hopefully there, uh, he wouldn't have been able to get away with it in today's world. Yeah, definitely a different world that we're living in. So, um, the victimology, which, which I know we've had you on, of course, a couple of times before D'Angelo was caught. And then we were, we were speculating. So one of the things that we speculated on is that he was a police officer. That was part of, of, the profiling of him, but then there was the, a lot of speculation about the victimology. You know, how did he select these people? What did all these people have in common? Um, what's kind of your final take on that? Uh, do we find a, a consistent uh, theme among the victims? Not really, um, because I, it seems like he changed it up a little bit as, as he went. Um, there were some times when he'd attack opportunistically and there were some times where he'd stalk somebody for six months um, the the fact that he kept so much geographic distance between himself and his victims and that he kept there was there were no obvious ties between him and his victims is sort of what kept him free and kept anybody from connecting any dots because that was one of the the main leads that detectives were following early on is which school did these victims go to? Where did they work? Where could they have run into the same type of person? And um, there, there's no real obvious ties. Even now with, with all of these people getting together and talking, there's just no commonality and no con common link and no way for any of it to really make sense about why somebody was chosen. And that's, you know, we talked about the, the trial not happening. I know a lot of people really wanted to 
used the trial as a way to find out why they were chosen and why it happened to them and, and not somebody, you know, why they were chosen. Um, and that is probably something he's going to take to the grave. One of the other uh, unique things about this guy was the taunting telephone calls um, that happened in some cases years later. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. Um, so now after the arrest and a lot of people were coming back to this after not wanting to deal with it or, or not having to deal with it for so many years is uh, a lot more of the phone activity actually occurred to victims uh, that D'Angelo had uh, attacked or the families of murdered victims, even up until, I guess, 2017 is the last one I've heard of. Um, and it was sort of a way for him to continue to terrorize long after uh, the person that had been victimized and reopen those wounds. And um, a lot of the early phone calls that that uh, people attribute to D'Angelo, um, I've sort of changed my mind on that maybe some of those early ones, uh, you know, taunting the police and whatnot were not him. Um, now that I've looked at, at the timelines a little bit closer, there, there was one in particular where um, we thought that he had called later in the series to taunt the police and attack, but um, there were actually like something like 30 days in between those. Um, but then there was, I, th I guess it was attack number 15 where he called um, the police station three times and then went and attacked. So uh, he did a lot more on the phones. And the, the reason that that hasn't come out as much or didn't come out as much at the, at the time was that the police didn't tell anybody that he was calling houses in advance of attacks and hanging up to case the places they didn't really tell anybody that he would call them afterwards um and a lot of uh the victims thought this is only happening to me or they got a lot of strange uh hang up phone calls and it wasn't a known part of his mo um after the attack many many years later and they, they didn't know that it could possibly be him so there's still a lot of uh, some question marks over that, uh, but he definitely terrorized people over the phone. Um, he would leave uh, or he would say horrible things to them. Um, he would tr he would let them know that it was him. Uh, one person got a call 25 years later. Wow. Um, so it's it, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I was looking at some of these uh, calls um, earlier in the day. And, you know, this is, you know, textbook serial killers, you know, taunting the police. One of the calls here on March 18th, 1977, uh, he calls and tells them I'm the East Side Rapist. Then another call in 1977, you're never going to catch me is sort of the theme of that one. Then another one, uh, he calls a victim and says, Merry Christmas. Uh, it's me again. Yes. Uh, I mean, j and then another one. I'm going to kill you. Uh, a, a rape victim. He calls uh, on and on and on. Um, you know, it, this guy was. I mean, clearly, you know, it's it's one thing to claim that he had this uncontrollable urge, but it would take a sure. I mean, someone that is is absolutely evil to the core uh, to re-victimize these people by calling them years later. Uh, I mean, just. I, just to think that he kept track of their 
uh, identity and their location and then would get their phone number and call them and do something like that. Uh, it, it, I mean, this is, of course, you know, a lot of this was before the, the days of the Internet where getting someone's phone number wasn't necessarily uh, the easiest thing to do. People get married and change names and move and all of that sort of thing. The idea that he would take the time and effort to go back and re-victimize these people uh, has got to be maybe the darkest, most evil part of this whole story. And that's representative of how he committed all of these crimes. He would plan and he'd have, when he went out to attack, he would know everybody's schedule on a street and he would have a primary victim that he wanted to attack. And he'd have a secondary victim if they weren't available and probably a third and so on. Or he'd just be prepared to attack on the spur of the moment and he'd be able to do it because he knew all of the inroads and escape paths and everything of a particular neighborhood. He planned and he was prepared and he knew how to avoid detection and he knew how to avoid getting caught. And that's where something like the insanity defense, if, if, we're, if we're ever to be tried, would go out the window because of all of the planning and the conscious effort that, that he did just to commit these crimes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now that he's been caught and more information is coming out, I'm I'm assuming is is there another book coming or at least like an update to the book that you've written on this case? Um, I've I, we've talked about it off and on. Uh, I don't know when the right time or the right method for something like that might be. Um, you know, there's. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, a lot of people ask about that. If we do something, it might be more like a website or might be like a free ebook or something like that. Or, or maybe um, even a podcast, because I know these different uh, like Wondery out of Southern California there, they do a lot of true crime podcasts and it's very well uh, produced. And that would give you a chance to kind of tell the rest of the story uh, here. That would be very interesting. Um, any any other uh, surprises or developments uh, that have come out that would would really that, that you felt were significant that that sort of surprised you or, or really kind of updated the story for you personally because you followed this uh, so closely something that uh, came out in all of this with him being caught and his identity being revealed in all of this that 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 really to you was a real significant update to this story. Oh gosh. Um... In a way, a lot of the puzzle pieces just fit, and it all just made sense, um, especially his Navy career that we found out about, because there was so much speculation about the variety of knots that he was able to tie. Um, it was assumed that he used different knots for different purposes, uh, like stronger knots for the victim's hands and looser knots um, for the female's legs. And there was a lot of speculation that he could have had a Navy experience, and it was the Vietnam era, and a lot of people did at that time. Um, there, I mean, so much about this crime series makes sense when you start looking at the timeline, um, especially, so this is one thing we didn't really, haven't really talked about very much. Um, as we were going through the, the series and whatnot, there was a period of time where he had committed about 50 home invasion rapes. And then all of a sudden those just stopped and they were on either side of the, the stoppage was um, a really uh, 
odd East Area Rapist attack where he it sort of went off the rails and he was basically cha- you know, uh, chased out of the home almost because the, the husband woke up and sort of shouted him into a corner and then they escaped and he had to run for it. And then um, a few months later, he reappeared 400 miles to the south and he was out for blood. The next couple, he started saying that he was going to kill them. You know, before he was like, oh, do this or I'll kill you. Uh, but this time he was just like, I'm going to kill you. And this couple escaped. So th- there were some odd failures around July 1979. And that was when we learned that Officer Joseph D'Angelo of the Auburn PD was caught trying to steal dog repellent and a hammer from a convenience store in East Sacramento, which was right in the heart of the area where he'd been active as a home invasion rapist. And D'Angelo, when he was busted by the store clerks, he tried to get out of it by faking a heart attack and going into what the newspapers called an emotional state. And the clerks held him over for the police by tying him in a chair. And uh, at that point, he had to think that he was busted for everything. And and we see the theatrics here, which is just something he, he does whenever he's caught. Um, back when he was cornered as the ransacker, uh, we talked about a while ago, uh, by the police, he'd started these high-pitched screams and started running around. And now, if you watch his court appearances, you see the, the sick and frail, disoriented uh, thing. And during his attacks, he'd use fake accents, um, a lot of manipulation. Um, so, yeah, this was a police officer caught shoplifting. So he was placed on leave from that job and uh, he didn't respond to the investigative inquiry at a time. He did appeal it. He had 15 days to appeal it. And he did. And while this was happening was when the East Area Rapist activity moved 400 south, 400 miles south to the Santa Barbara area. Um, and meanwhile, D'Angelo, the shoplifter, faces a criminal trial in Sacramento related to the hammer and dog repellent theft. And D'Angelo himself actually even took the stand and he denied the shoplifting charge, but the, the jury didn't buy it. And they had no idea that they had the East Area Rapist in their courtroom. <laughs> and he was sentenced to six months probation. He lost his job. And he, so he was no longer a police officer. And that we were something had to have changed in the offender's life before the arrest. We knew something had to have changed. And this was it. He could no longer. Um, be a police officer with the training and possibly, you know, information about how investigations are done and maybe even how the East Area Rapist investigation was being done. And he no longer had the income. He no longer had the excuse. Hey, honey, I'm going out to work my night shift. Um, Oh, look at all the, the cash I brought home. What, you know, whatever. However, he justified that at home. Um, he no longer had the veil of that. So his attacks became a lot more sporadic and a lot different from that point. Um, he went back to the, I mean, just, just to catch people up, he went back to the Santa Barbara area at the end of 1979 and committed a series of burglaries and what looked like another East area rapist attack gone wrong. But this time he shot the couple while he was attacking them. And from that point forward, he no longer left witnesses. So his anger and his method had changed and he'd become a serial killer at that point. Any thoughts on him stopping? Because this is one of the most unique parts of this case that all of a sudden he goes dormant. Um, and, And part of that, too, I'd like you to talk about, you know, what he did with his life uh, during that 
those years. Like, what was his? What did his neighbors have to say about him? What What do we know about how he lived his life as an older man? And did we ever really find out officially why he he stopped? So um, some of this is speculation, um, you know, because we don't know for sure. Um, in his personal life, after being fired from Auburn PD, he got payments from the state for a little while. Um, but after that, his paper trail drops off quite a bit. Um, I don't know what they were able to find, you know, looking up in income tax records. Um, but this was also the era of cash payments. Um, he reportedly took odd jobs as a mechanic, commercial diver, and there's one, uh, maybe a construction job. He and his wife began having children, and he spent time with them. In fact, his last two known murders are situated around having children. One murder was just a couple months before the first child's birth, and the very last known murder happened right after D'Angelo would have found, uh, found out that his wife was pregnant with the next child. Um, so there could be family uh, responsibilities that, that either dialed him down or left him unable to escape the house. Um, his wife finished law school and became the breadwinner uh, for all intents and purposes. And apart from former victims receiving hang-up and taunting phone calls, you know, that they attributed to their attacker, after 1986, there are no violent crimes on the books for D'Angelo. But it, it doesn't mean that he didn't commit any. Um, we don't know. In the 1980s, he still lived in the east area of Sacramento, right where he'd committed those crimes. Though there were relatives and his wife's job that brought him to Southern California for stretches of time. Uh, as the 1990s began, he found steady employment as a big rig truck mechanic near Sacramento, living in the middle of the manhunt, basically. And other than brushes with the courts that we've discussed in the last show that we did that were unrelated to his crimes, he kept a low profile. Um, he and his wife separated in the early 90s, and D'Angelo worked as a mechanic until he retired in his early 70s, right before he was identified through the investigative genetic genealogy in 2018. And what what did the neighbors say about him? I, I, I always find it interesting when the neighbors say, oh, he was the, the nicest guy. He, you know, I, I knocked on his door and, and he, you know, uh, give me, a, a, you know, a, a cup of sugar if I was short in my baking recipe or he'd offer to watch my dog while I was on vacation. Uh, he didn't have quite that cheery of a reputation in the neighborhood, did he? Right. We didn't have a lot of that in this case. And we usually do because they they usually overcompensate, it seems like. Um, to remain unsuspected, but there there have been all kinds of reports about um, him getting into shouting matches, him shouting at his wife after they were separated, um, going to where she was staying, and uh, shouting at children. He possibly poisoned a dog, uh, one of the many instances of him killing animals. Um, other neighbors, there have been neighbors that have come forward and said, he was in my backyard and I, I don't know why. Uh, you know, possibly prowling or peeping or uh, they're just, there there wasn't a lot of positivity uh, surrounding his reputation. Um, at, at work, there was, um, the people that worked with him don't remember him really. 
So there was a little bit of that, um, not not people who worked with him day in and day out, but people who worked at the same company and had casual interactions with him don't really remember him. Um, so there there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't that church going uh, really positive, oh, I can't believe um, this is him from the neighbors and, and co-workers as much as you usually see. Yeah, it would be a shame, uh, you know, for your neighbors to think, oh, I'm not surprised at all. This guy's a serial killer. <laughs> Some of my neighbors yeah. might say that about me uh, some days. I, You know, who knows? Uh, all right. Uh, this has been fascinating. Keith, we, we're so glad you came back. And uh, give people information about uh, how they can get the book and also any any websites you want to give out. And uh, and tell us if you've got anything else planned. Are you uh, working on another book about another killer? Or was this a one-off that you're, that you're uh, doing this uh, true crime deal? Um. I do a lot of behind the scenes type stuff now. Um, a lot of looking into cases for other people. Sometimes people come to me um, and sometimes I sort of volunteer or somebody volunteers me and a lot of just looking into things and sending them directly to law enforcement. Um, the Golden State Killer books are still out there, I believe on Amazon. Um, just search Comos, K-O-M-O-S, and they should come up. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of, uh, research and, and using technology to make sense of, of some of these larger crimes and helping to make a positive difference from people if possible. Um, this case in particular was obviously very solvable because there was DNA and D'Angelo left so much evidence behind. Maybe and, the next, uh, maybe uh, the next case you could go after is the DB Cooper mystery. <laughs> with your with, that would be very interesting yeah with yeah. your with your mind and your technical skills who knows if, if that could be the next one that you solve keith comos thanks so much for joining us god bless sir I, i've thoroughly enjoyed having you on uh four times and uh please stay in touch with us because if you have anything uh new on this case or any other cases you're following we'd sure love to hear from you again I will. Thank you very much for covering this. Thank you. God bless. Uh, this guy, you know, Keith Comos, um, he's a, he's a genius and I don't give him enough credit. I didn't, at least in that interview, uh, of how he began to investigate this case with his co-author. And uh, he is in his own right, uh, really a technical genius forensically uh, being able to use uh, phone records and other technology that a lot of it he it has proprietarily kind of invented some of these investigative methods. Uh, just a genius of a guy. And this case just continues to fascinate me. And, I, you know, one of the things people ask me a lot is, why do you talk about serial killers? I thought you were ChristianMoney.com, Christian financial guy. Well, of course, you know, this show has evolved over the years, and uh, we now talk about news. We talk about a lot of other things than just money. Uh, but I honestly, I, I'm fascinated with the mind of the psychopaths and sociopaths for a lot of reasons. Uh, many of you know about my own story of being the victim of an embezzlement scheme by a family member. And, um, you know, that that sort of made me start wondering, can you really trust people? Can you, you know, are people what they appear to be on the surface or not? And I was certainly fooled uh, for several years by my own brother, who is my accountant, who embezzled from me. But also then in my life, as I've moved on to with my martial arts training and started to work with mostly women, teaching them self-defense, uh, part of that is 
um, really being able to warn people that there are these horrible, dark, evil characters out there. And as I say in my self-defense seminars, these are people that have a 10th degree black belt uh, in their craft, which is being a predator. And whether it's a Ted Bundy or the Golden State Killer or the BTK Killer or or, or the, the Green River Killer, all of these different serial killers uh, certainly share one common trait, which is the ability to be disarming, uh, the ability to get into their into people's homes, to be uh, the ability to get people to go in their cars with them where they're able to take them to a secondary location. So the more light I can shed on this to create awareness, uh, maybe you'll be a little bit more careful uh, when you're out there in that dark parking lot or you're out there going to the ATM uh, when you probably should skip that and wait until the next day or maybe double checking to make sure your door is locked at night and your alarm is set or maybe that you take a self-defense class or or learn how to use a firearm. Uh, we really today can cannot be too careful. And these are also warnings, not just maybe for those of us that are in our 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, but also in particular to young people that tend to be overly trusting. If you have a, especially a, a young uh, woman in your life, uh, a daughter, a granddaughter, a niece uh, who's getting ready to go off to college, uh, these are things to tell them about, not to scare them, but take a basic self-defense uh, class. I'm certified to teach the RAD uh, Rape Defense Program. Those programs are held all around the country. Country, and I highly recommend them or just go to your local martial arts studio uh, and, and take a crash course in personal self-defense. You don't have to be a black belt to be able to protect yourself. And a lot of it is just being someone that's cautious, not trusting. And I, and I hate to say that, but in this world, you can't trust people. Uh, there used to be a time when if you saw somebody pulled off to the side of the road with the hood up on their car that you could pull over and help them. But now you don't know. Maybe that's a setup uh, for them to be able to victimize you and your family. Of course, you can call 911. You can call a tow truck for them, uh, whatever to, to, to help them. But, you know, things that we used to do uh, years ago. I mean, I remember growing up in Chicago. We left the house unlocked. We left the car keys in the car. I mean, things that today would just be crazy uh, to to even consider. In any case, my fascination continues. Uh, one of our favorite topics, and you've told us it's one of your favorite topics. Well, we continue to explore uh, the mystery uh, and the dark side of all of this world of, of serial killers, which is just uh, uh, talk about looking evil directly in the face when you see uh, someone like this man and all of the lives that he ruined, not just the victims and those that were murdered and raped, but all of the family members that were uh, affected as well, and, and just the lives that were destroyed, probably in the tens of thousands if we were to count them just unreal uh and there is evil in this world i know that's uh sort of goes against what culture tells us today everybody wants to say well people are basically good wrong the bible says that people are not basically good that we have a sin nature that the default position for humanity is is sin it is evil and because of that we just need to be careful we need to be cautious and take those extra steps thanks so much for joining us i'll be on vacation next week but we'll try and post a fresh new pre-recorded episode for you if it's sunday night remember it's jim paris live we'll talk to you next time so long everybody